Good morning. All right, there is a story about a missionary a long time ago who went to preach the gospel to an unreached people group. And I think this story is actually more of a parable than a true story. But anyway, the missionary went to this unreached people group and he met the chief of the village. And the chief of the village asked him, what do I have to give to your God to join your religion? What do I have to give to your God in order to be accepted by him? Do I have to give him my blanket? And the missionary said, you don't have to give him your blanket. And the chief said, do I have to give him my pottery? And the missionary said, you don't have to give him your pottery. And he said, do I have to give him my weapons? And the missionary said, you don't have to give him your weapons. And he said, well, then what do I have to give your God to, you know, to convert? And the missionary said, well, my God wants you. Like he, he wants you to give you to him. And the chief said, your God is smart. Because if he gets me... He gets my blanket and my pottery and my weapons, too. <laughs> and I think that there is something in us that realizes that the village chief is correct. Like, if I belong to God, then everything that belongs to me belongs to God. And that brings us to our topic this morning, which is what are we supposed to do with money? So we've been in a series now for a long time, Way of Wisdom. This is now part 21, and we were, we've been preaching through the book of Proverbs. And the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, as we preached through it, we just preached it the normal way, because the book of Proverbs is like a normal book of the Bible for the first nine chapters. So just chapter by chapter, we taught what the verses said. Once you get to chapter 10 in the book of Proverbs, it changes, and Proverbs becomes the thing that Proverbs is famous for, which is that there is a long, long list of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, individual little one sentence at a time, usually sentences that are true. And the topic um, is changes. Most of the time it changes every single sentence. And then there's another one and then there's another one. And so if you were to teach it chapter by chapter, you would be doing sermons that have like 20 different topics in them. So instead of that, what we've been doing the last several weeks is we've been doing one topic at a time rather than 20 topics at a time. We've been taking one topic in the book of Proverbs, whether it's family relationships or pride or God's sovereignty or whatever it is, and looking at multiple Proverbs that all talk about the one topic. And so today's topic is money. Um, if you are someone who's new, especially if this is your very first week at our church, and especially if you're someone that goes, I don't like it when preachers talk about money, and so I will say to you, first of all, sorry, um, and come back next week when we're not talking about money, okay? But it just happens to be the topic this week. And we sort of started the topic last week. The sermon last week was called Rich and Poor. And we looked at the different Proverbs that talk about rich and poor. And I would say that sermon was about money, but it was fairly general. And it was, we talked a lot about like big picture concepts when it comes to money. We talked about money not being inherently sinful. We talked about the fact that laziness leads to poverty and how many times the book of Proverbs teaches that. We talked about the fact that you can be poor and be on the right path following God. Uh, we talked about the fact that God cares about the vulnerable, like widows and orphans. And so we covered a lot of things last week, but we did not spend very much time on what to do with money. And so we saved that for this week. Um, so today I want to go to the Proverbs, most of which we, most of these Proverbs we left at, we didn't get to last week. And I want to give you six things to do with money from the book of Proverbs. I have six points in my sermon this morning. Six, what are you supposed to do with money? I've got six things that Proverbs tells us to do with money. And as I go through these six points, I just want to let you know, I'm going to spend a disproportionate amount of time on the first one, sort of laying a foundation. And I wanted you to know that because once we get to the end of the first one, you might start thinking, Oh my goodness, and there's five more. We're going to be here all day. And I just want to let you know, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the first one, and then we should probably get through points two, three, four, five, and six 
fairly quickly. And so we'll talk about one thing, and then we're going to talk about five more things that we are to do with money. So here's point number one. What are you to do with money? Number one, don't trust in it. When we talk about what Proverbs says to do with money, I want to start off with don't trust in it. And if you're picky, you might go, well, that's not a thing to do with money. That's a thing to not do with money. Okay, you got me, but I don't have a better way to phrase it. Proverbs tells us not to trust in riches. And so if you look at Proverbs 11, verse 28, you will see that it says, anyone trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. And so obviously there is a righteousness that is here being contrasted with trusting in your riches, right? There's a blessing, there's a flourishing that comes with righteousness, but there's a fall that comes with trusting in riches. Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11, I'm going to read them to you. I actually read these verses last week, and I'm going to read them again. We kind of ended with this last week, and so we're going to sort of pick up where we left off. Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11 says, The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. A rich man's wealth is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. So we can see the first proverb, the one that's verse 10 here, talks about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, that his name is the strong tower. He is the one that the righteous are supposed to run to, and if they do, they are what? They are protected, that our safety, our protection, our security comes from God. And then the very next proverb says, a rich man's wealth is his fortified city. In his imagination, it's a high wall, that there are people who are righteous and they look to God for their security and for their protection. And there are people who are rich that say, I don't think I need God. I've got my stuff. My stuff is my fortified city. It's like a wall that's so high, no one will be able to scale it and get to me. My security is in my things. And so um, I, I thought about saying this week that there is something about money that tempts us to trust in it rather than God. And in fact, I did say that last week. I think that was the last point of the sermon last week. So we're picking up where we left off, and there are maybe a few things in this sermon that I said last week that I'm sort of going to re-say. At least I'm going to say it from a different angle. There's just a little bit of overlap between last week's topic and this. And so I'll say some things that we said last week, but from a different angle. Last week, the way I phrased it was, there is something about money that tempts us to trust in it rather than God. And I don't regret saying that. I think that's true. There is something about money that tempts us to trust in it rather than God. But I think there's another way to look at it. The, the, there's nothing wrong with saying that way. It's true. Like the, even the New Testament says stuff like that. But in order, for to, to, in order for it to be true that stuff tempts us to trust in it, money tempts us to trust in it rather than God, for that to be true, you kind of have to personify money, right? That money is tempting us. But if you're being more literal, money doesn't tempt you to not follow God. It just sits there. It doesn't do anything, Right? Like money doesn't tempt us like a person does. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't do anything. Like when, if you're walking past a Porsche, it doesn't go, psst, hey, hey, come over here. Don't help poor people. Buy me instead. Like it doesn't do that, right? It literally just sits there and does nothing. And when you look over, like that all happens in your head, right? The, the, the Porsche isn't doing it. That's you doing that. And so I think that's important to understand that um, when we talked about last week, we said that um, money is not inherently sinful. I think that's important for us to understand. It's not. Like, the money doesn't try to get you to sin. Wealth doesn't try to get you to sin. It, it just sits there. But yet, there is this temptation to trust in money. And, but it's not because money is wicked. It's because there's something going on in us. But I think it's important to establish that at the beginning. So we said it last week. I'll say it again this week, though, because I think I have some more insight to share with you. 
money itself isn't wicked. And one of the ways we can know that is that money is just the stuff of this earth. It's just, money is just that which God created or that which man created out of the stuff God created, right? What we call money is either stuff God made or stuff humans made out of stuff God made. And those things aren't wicked in and of themselves. And that's something that, I don't know, maybe I didn't understand that as a kid. Sometimes we think of money only in like terms of currency. You think if somebody's rich, they have a bunch of dollars, right, or coins or numbers in their bank account. And so you think of that as money, but that's not really money. That's, that represents what true wealth is. Right, the only, those green pieces of paper, the only reason you care about a $20 bill is because you can take it to Publix and trade it for stuff. If it didn't do that, the paper would be worthless to you. So it's not really money that's the issue, it's, it's wealth. And so when you're a little kid, maybe you think of a rich person as someone who has a bunch of dollars, right? I mean, I don't know if you ever thought, did any of you think of that as a kid? Like a kid, rich people just have vaults in their house just filled with cash. I think it was DuckTales' fault. I don't know if you ever watched... <laughs> Any of you watched the show DuckTales? The star of that show was Scrooge McDuck. He was the richest man in the land. And he had this money bin that was 12 stories tall and was filled with gold coins, I think, or something. You swim around in it. And so as a little kid, you're seven, and you go, oh, I guess that's what riches are. It's people that just have tons of cash sitting somewhere. And now as an adult, you look back and you realize, no, you could, someone could be very rich and not have very much cash. Right? Someone could have hardly any cash, but they could have a house in Ocala and a house on the Rainbow River and a condo in Miami and a condo in New York and a ranch in Colorado and a little cabin in North Carolina. And we would say that person's rich, right? Why? Because they could have six houses or somebody that has a yacht. And that's how they measured wealth in the Bible as well, especially Old Testament. There wasn't much currency. There certainly weren't dollars in the Old Testament. How did you know whether someone was wealthy or not back then? The stuff they had, Job is one of the rich characters in the Old Testament, and Job is called wealthy, and how is his wealth measured? Do you remember why Job was considered wealthy? Because he had thousands of sheep and thousands of camels. That's how he was considered to be wealthy. He didn't have a money bin. He had a bunch of animals. And by the time that um, Proverbs is written, it's still that way. Proverbs is written later on than the time period of Job. But it's, there's still that idea of what wealth is. Wealth is, is by the stuff you have. Look at... Um, Proverbs chapter 27, starting verse 23. It says, Know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herds. Okay, so this is an animal verse, right? For wealth is not forever. Not even a crown lasts for all time. Now, if you don't know, if you don't understand what I had just said prior to this verse, I think that you could look at this verse and go, well, that's a weird Bible verse. Know well the condition of your flock. You've got to pay attention to your herds, and then it's so weird that in the middle of the sentence, he just changes the topic. He's talking about animals, and then suddenly he's talking about wealth. Why did he change the topic right in the middle of the sentence? He didn't change the topic in the middle of the sentence. The wealth that's in the second half of that verse is referring back to the animals in the first half of the verse. And so we look at that and we realize, okay, wealth is not sinful, money is not wicked, because sheep aren't wicked, right? Because houses aren't evil, right? Boats aren't evil. Camels aren't wicked. Money is just the stuff of this earth. But once we realize that money is just the stuff of this earth, and then we realize, but, and yet we are tempted to trust in it rather than God, we have to admit, and this is the other side of the coin I'm getting to now, then there is something about the human condition that gravitates toward trusting in that which God has created rather than trusting in Him. It's not that the money itself is tempting us. It's just there. God made a world. 
And there's something about the sinful human condition that gravitates toward placing our trust and our value and our hope in things that God has created rather than on God himself. And that is idolatry. The, the valuing of and the worship of and the, the, the finding your security in and your significance in the things that have been created by God rather than God himself, that's idol worship. We don't think of it as idolatry because we think of idolatry like the story in Exodus when the, the people of Israel were rescued from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and Moses is gone for a while and Aaron takes the gold that the people own, the, the gold of the Israelites, and he melts it down and he fashions it into a calf and there's this golden calf and they all come and they worship the golden calf as if it's their God. And we read that story and we go, well, that's silly. They're worshiping a statue. Of course, that was stupid. But that's not what we do. And yet, if we are someone who, who trusts in things that God has created rather than God himself, that's, that's idolatry without a statue. Now, one more thing I want to say about this, and this is the observation of someone else, but I thought it was so good, I wanted to share it with you. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor that I like a lot. He's a pastor in Manhattan, and I don't agree with every single thing he says, but he says, there, he says some things that are very helpful, and I was listening to his series on Proverbs, and he talked about this idea of, I don't even know if he used the word idolatry in that sermon, but he talked about this idea of when we treat money like a god, right? That when we, when we, when we trust in it and it takes the place of God in our life. And he said, and this is not a quote, I did not sit there and write out everything he said, this is just a paraphrase, but he talked about the fact that when money takes a godlike place in our life, it will look different for different people. You can't, there's not just one way that this is what happens when you're worshiping money. It's going to look different for different people. And I remember he specifically said, some people look to wealth for their significance. And some people look to wealth for their security. And the person who's, who treats wealth like a god because they get their significance from it is going to act very different from someone who treats their wealth like a god because they get their security from it. The person who gets their, their significance from wealth is going to be someone who tends to spend a lot more. The people who find their significance in wealth are the people who are going to go, well, this is what makes me matter. This is what's important. So I'm going to make sure I have a bunch of, like, my, I'm going to have fancy clothes. I'm going to have a fancy house. I'm going to have a fancy car because my significance comes from this. And then you can have someone else who their security comes from wealth. And they would never do that. They're going to be sitting there wearing clothes from Walmart and they're driving a Honda from 2006, right? And what they're going to do is not spend a, a, a way more than most people. They're going to do what? Save a lot more than most people. They're going to be sitting there going, I don't need another one. Nope, nope, and I'm not going to. And meanwhile, I'm going to keep storing it up and storing it up and storing it up because that's what's going to protect me. My ultimate security, the thing that's going to be there for me for every disaster is going to be my stuff. And so you can see this, this two different ways of treating money like a god, and they look totally different. And this person over here could sit there and look over at those people over there and go, look at them and how they trust in their money as their security. I don't do that. Let's go buy some more, right? And this person over here could do the same thing. Look at them loving money, and they're so concerned with all of having the latest thing. Not me, no, not me. And I'm going to shovel some more in and shovel some more in and make sure that I'm prepared for it. Because this is my, my, my protection, my, the thing that keeps me safe, ultimately, is this. And so I realized like you, there can be an idolatry. There can be a trusting in wealth that looks completely different from person to person. 
And I bring that up not to guilt you, and I don't even do it, not to make it sound like spending is a sin, it's not, or that saving is a sin, it's not. In fact, as we go through these six things that you are to do with money, we're going to see that spending is one of the things you're supposed to do with money, and saving is one of the things you are supposed to do with money. The reason I say it is not to go, don't ever spend, don't ever save. The reason I'm saying it is, it just seems to me that trusting in riches or not trusting in riches and evaluating that is trickier than we would think. It's a tricky thing, and we can't just look at someone else and go, well, that's not what I would do, and I must be doing it right, and they must be doing it wrong. We need to seek the Lord's will when we're handling his stuff and not just simply assume what, the way that I naturally, what I naturally desire to do with my money, that must be legit. We have to seek what is God's will. What does he want me to do with his stuff? So that's point number one. Don't trust in it. Now we'll go through the next five fairly quickly. So what should you do with money? Number one, don't trust in it. Number two, honor the Lord with it. Honor the Lord with it. This one is so important, and I just want to make sure that it was pretty early on in the list. Um, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Now, the second half of this proverb, I think, is referring to giving. I think it's referring to earlier in um, the New, the earlier in the Old Testament, that the the first fruits that were to be given to Yahweh. Okay, that the Israelites were to set aside their first fruits for God. And we're going to talk about giving later on in the sermon, so I'll get to that later. But the first half of the proverb says, "Honor the Lord with your possessions." I think that's a helpful, like just foundational truth to begin with. Not only do we not trust in it, but we are to honor God with it. What are you supposed to do with your dining room table, with your couch, with your car, with your retirement account, with your house, with your stuff? You honor the Lord with it. Whether you're spending or borrowing or loaning or sharing or whatever it is that you're doing, the, the, the thing you're supposed to do with your possessions is honor the Lord with them. If it's true that all of our possessions are His, if it's, if it's God's money, and if He's worthy of all honor then we need to honor him with our stuff or need to honor him with his stuff. All right, number three. So what are you supposed to do with money? Don't trust in it. Honor the Lord with it. Earn it honestly is number three. Don't trust in it. Honor the Lord with it. Earn it honestly. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11 says, Wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle, but whoever earns it through labor will multiply it. Clearly, it's talking about something about the way this works, the way the world works, and it's saying that you're not supposed to obtain wealth by fraud, right? There is a way to earn wealth. It is good to earn wealth. It's good to multiply it. Apparently, it's good to have stuff, right? As long as you earn it through labor. Working for it is what you're supposed to do, and then it multiplies. But apparently, there's another way to obtain wealth, and that's by fraud, by tricking other people out of it. That's what you're not supposed to do. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 1. 11 verse 1 says, Dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. This is a very interesting verse, although it could be a super weird verse if you're not familiar with their culture. Because you go, okay, wait, dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord? I didn't even know he cared about scales that much. An accurate weight, like that's what he delights in? Accurate weight? I mean, Mar I got a bathroom scale at my house that's a little off, but I didn't know God was like emotional about that. And I got a friend who's got a real accurate scale, like Herb's measures like pounds and ounces, right? Does that mean God loves her scale more than my scale? And the answer is no, no, no. This, this verse has nothing to do with your bathroom scale. This is written to an agricultural culture and written to an ancient peoples who would, by buying and selling things, buy the pound. 
And if you're going to buy wheat or barley or figs or olives or grapes or whatever it is, a scale would be used to determine how much you're buying and what the price should be. And I imagine there were people back then that were savvy enough that they realized, if I would like to increase my profits 10% over last year, one way to do that is produce 10% more grapes, produce 10% more barley. But another way to do it, a perhaps easier way to do it, is to make it seem like I'm selling 10% more grapes. To, to, to rig the scale, especially 10%, who's going to notice the difference between you know, 90 pounds and 99 pounds? Who's going to notice a 10% difference? I could, I could increase my profits by 10% without growing anything extra at all. That's what God's upset about. That's what is detestable to the Lord. It has nothing to do with your bathroom scale. The idea that you would increase your bottom line by tricking someone else, that dishonesty is detestable to the Lord. The accurate weight of being honest with someone is his delight. All right, number four. What are you to do with money? Don't trust in it. Honor the Lord with it. Earn it honestly. Provide for yourself and your household. Provide for yourself and your household. Uh, Proverbs 29, verse 19 says, The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. So again, an agricultural illustration, because it's an agricultural culture. If you work your land, what's going to happen? You're going to have plenty of food, because it grows from the land. Whoever chases fantasies, that is, this person is putting some kind of effort into something they're chasing, but what they're chasing is not even real. And so if I'm chasing what's not even real, I'm going to have poverty. But if I actually work hard on, in the land... What's going to happen? I'm going to have plenty of food. And that's what it's saying you should do. It's, it's good to have plenty of food. Therefore, it's good to work hard to make the land produce the food. It's not wrong to have plenty of food, and it's not wrong to eat it. That's the assumption here. If he works the land and has plenty of food, it's good for him to use it to provide for his family. So it's good to have food. It's good to grow it. It's good to work for it. And it's not wrong to eat the fruit of your labor, literally. But not, this is so specifically about a farmer but I, in principle, this would apply to a non-farmer. Like even back then, let's say you're the blacksmith in the town, and you go, well, I can't eat the horseshoes and the swords that I make. Well, I think it's the same thing. It's okay to make the horseshoes and the swords and sell them for money and then use the money to buy food and then eat that food. It's the same principle. And so I think the idea here is not just that it's not wrong to, and it's good to grow food and eat it, but, but the more general thing, it's, it's good to earn money and spend it. It's okay to earn money and then consume it, to consume things and provide for your house. Proverbs 27, verses 23 through 27 says this, know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herds, for wealth is not forever, not even a crown lasts for all time. That should sound familiar to you. I just read it a few minutes ago. Now I'm going to finish the paragraph, right? Herds, got it. Wealth is not, not even a crown lasts for all time. When hay is removed and the new growth appears and the grain from the hills is gathered in, lambs will provide your clothing and goats the price of a field. And there will be enough goat's milk for your food, food for your household and nourishment for your servants. The idea is that these people with these farms are supposed to do this in order to provide for their households. And it provides them food. And it doesn't just provide them food. It says lambs will provide your clothing. It's not just that it's okay to eat, right? It's okay also to have clothing. And you're supposed to do the work that will provide for your clothing. And the goats provide not clothing, but a, the price of a field, which I assume means that you either sell the goats or sell the milk from the goats or whatever it may be to get a field. You can exchange money back and forth. But the idea is you 
cultivate things and you create things and you get it and you live off of it and you spend it and you, and you provide for your household. All right, number five, what do you do with money? Don't trust in it, honor the Lord with it, earn it honestly, provide for yourself and your household and plan ahead. Plan ahead. This one's so important. Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, the slacker does not plow during planting season. At harvest time he looks and there is nothing. There, are, there is so much wisdom in Proverbs, isn't there? It's crazy. I mean, we're 21 weeks into this, and we're still coming across verses that we're like, ooh, that is profound. So the slacker does not plow during planting season. At harvest time, he looks, and there is nothing. This one is similar to some of the verses we looked at last week as far as um, laziness causing poverty. But this one has a timing element to it, right? This guy is lazy during a particular time called planting season. And then later on, there's a different time called harvest time, and there's nothing there. The guy didn't plan ahead, right? So he's lazy. There, there, there came some day where he was lazy and he said, eh, I'm not in the mood. I'm not in the mood to do anything. And then the consequences for not being in the mood for doing anything, apparently the consequences for that behavior wasn't anything right then. But then months went by and then it was harvest time. And he got up and looked around and all of his neighbors have all food coming up out of their land. And he looks and he goes, I got nothing coming out of my dirt. What happened? What's the problem? And the problem is there's something that you didn't do months ago. It has nothing to do with a mistake you made today. It's that there was a time to do and you did not plan ahead. You, there was a moment back here when you were supposed to be thinking about this day in the future and you weren't. And now you're at this day unprepared because you never thought about this day back on that day. And so now he has nothing. When it comes to finances, one must think ahead. Here's another one. Proverbs 21, verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in the dwelling of a wise person, but a foolish man consumes them. I love this proverb. I think it's a proverb that teaches about saving. The reason I think it teaches about saving is because it says precious treasure and oil are in the dwelling of a wise person. And then the second half is that the foolish man, what does he do with them? He consumes them. It's interesting. This proverb does not say the, the, the wise man has so much income that he has precious treasure and oil in his house. And the foolish man has so little income that he doesn't have any. That's not the point of the verse, is it? No, the wise man has precious treasure and oil and the foolish man consumes them. I think it's referring to the treasure and oil. In other words, it sounds like the foolish man and the wise man both had access to roughly the same amount of treasure and oil. But the foolish man consumed them. He swallowed it all up. He spent every penny of it. And so what's in his house now? Nothing. The wise man did not consume all of it. He, he probably consumed some of it, right? He had to to survive. But he didn't consume all of it. And that's why there's some of it still in his house. And so wise people do not consume all their stuff. They don't spend all that they have. Also under the category of plan ahead, Proverbs 22, verse 7. I want to just talk a little bit about loans and debt because Proverbs talks a little bit about loans and debt. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. I want to really focus on the second half of this proverb. The borrower is a slave to the lender. If you are looking for a Bible verse that talks positively about borrowing, this is not your verse, all right? Because it says that the person's a slave to the lender. 
right? That, that, that you can be in a situation where you spend money you don't have and you agree to something that causes your, your labor in the future to belong to someone else. That your work belongs to someone else. That you've become like their slave. Now, you might hear that and go, well, Mario, I have a mortgage and I, I, mean, I work at a bank or I, whatever. I've had taken a loan before. Is this verse saying that every single time anybody gets involved in a loan, any, every kind of borrowing is sinful? Right? I borrowed my grandma's umbrella last week. <gasps> like, is, is this verse saying every single time someone borrows, it's a sin? No. I've, we've said this before throughout the series. This book is called Proverbs. These are not laws. These are not commands. These are truths. These are bits of wisdom for how life works. I don't think this is saying there's never an occasion that anybody can ever borrow anything. I think it's saying watch out because in general you can get yourself into situations where you spend money you don't have and your future labor is owned by some other guy. Watch out for that. And then Proverbs 22 verses 26 through 27 says don't be one of those who enter agreements, who put up security for loans, if you have no money to pay, even your bed will be taken from under you. Now, I don't think this verse is about a personal loan from what I've looked into it. It seems that this verse is about co-signing someone else's loan. That's what that means, to put up security for loans. As you say, you pay this loan off, but if you don't, I will. I'll co-sign onto your loan. And, and uh, Proverbs is saying, watch out with those kind of agreements. Especially if you don't have the money. Don't think, oh, they'll take care of it. I'll just sign my name, but it's not like I'm ever going to have to pay it off. No, if you sign your name, you better be ready to pay it off. And if you have no money, they might come march into your house one day and take your bed from under you. Which this whole idea of plan ahead matches stuff that we learned earlier in the book of Proverbs. Back in chapter 6, remember I said to you, I didn't even make this up, um, I got it from somewhere, that today is a domino that touches tomorrow, and tomorrow is a domino that touches the next day, and the next day is a domino that touches the next day. And who you are and the decisions you make right now are very connected to who you are and the decisions you will make three months from now and three years from now. And I think this proverb is saying, hey, you've got to watch out. You can't, you can't just go, oh, I'm just going to sign now, and who cares about later? No, later on, they might come into your house and take your bed. And so you've got to be thinking about this day back here on this day. So plan ahead. It's something you see in the book of Proverbs. So what are you to do with money? Don't trust in it. Honor the Lord with it. Earn it honestly. Provide for yourself and your household. Plan ahead. And then lastly, give it away. Give it away. There are lots of Bible verses that talk about giving money away. There are lots of Bible verses that talk about generosity and sharing. There are lots of Proverbs that talk about giving money away. I'm just going to read four of them to you. Proverbs 11, verse 24, says, One person gives freely, yet gains more. Another withholds what is right, only to become poor. This is an interesting proverb. Some people call it a, a paradoxical proverb because it seems to contradict itself. It, it seems like that, almost like this couldn't be true. One person gives freely, yet gains more. No, if I'm giving something away, that, that's by definition, that's me having less. How am I going to get more if I'm giving it away? And then another withholds what is right, only to become poor. No, if I'm withholding, then I'm going to have it, right? Precious treasure and oil are in the house of the wise. I'm withholding. But in this case, it says withhold, withholds what is right. The assumption is there is a certain amount of your stuff that sh should not be held by you. It needs to be given. And so there's someone who can withhold and yet become poor. They can hang on and yet have less, while someone gives and yet has more. What does that mean? I think that God is teaching us that there's something about the way that he made things, that when someone is generous, there is a blessing that comes back onto the giver. 
When someone is generous, there's a blessing that comes back onto the giver. And the book of Proverbs, especially, seems to emphasize that that blessing often comes in this life. That when someone is generous and gives freely, there is, there is blessing and generosity that comes back to them in this life before they die. But it is also true that you can give freely and be rewarded for it after this life. Sometimes that's the case. Jesus talked about that. In the, in the book of Luke, Jesus talked about um, giving to help people not to be repaid on earth, but that God would reward that person at the resurrection of the righteous. At the resurrection of the righteous. So we see that people, that there's something about being blessed for generosity, either in this life or after this life. And again, the reverse seems to be true, that there's something about stinginess that brings on a curse. And the emphasis in Proverbs seems to be that that curse can be seen in this life, that the stingy person withholding that which they should not withhold can hurt them on this side of heaven. And of course, someone can be punished for stinginess after this life is through. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 25 says, A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. A similar principle. Proverbs 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. We, I referred to that one earlier, that the first fruits were to be given to Yahweh in ancient Israel for the purposes of what the Lord had set it aside for, that they were to give it. Proverbs 22, verse 9. A generous person will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Giving might be one of the holiest things that you can do with money. Giving is not the only thing you can do with money. That's for sure. We've already, we already learned that by learning all these verses. There's other stuff you're supposed to do other than give, right? You're supposed to save. You're supposed to spend. You're supposed to provide for your household. But I think giving is one of the holiest, best things that can be done with money. Because when you look at the Bible, I think it's pretty obvious. And you, in fact, if you didn't look at the Bible, you could probably figure this out. It is possible to overspend, right? It's possible to overborrow. It's possible to oversave to the point of hoarding. But I cannot think of a verse in the Bible that warns us against overgiving. There are certain things that are good, but you can take them too far, right? There's that you, it's definitely possible to overspend. It's possible to oversave. Maybe it's in there, I missed it. I can't think of a place in the Bible that warns us about overgiving. I'm not saying it's not possible. Maybe it's possible to overgive, but it must happen so rarely <laughs> that the Bible didn't devote much time to warning us about that one, right? You can't overgive. And so I look at this and I go, wow, maybe what we're supposed to do is spend whatever we're supposed to spend and save whatever we're supposed to save and give the rest. In the New Testament, giving is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the people that connects giving to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Apostle Paul, and he does it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's a semi-famous Bible verse. 
And it's interesting, this gospel picture or this gospel presentation is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and the context, and I would encourage you to go home and read it if you want, if you look at the chapter that this verse is found in, Paul is trying to get them to give. He's talking to them about giving. He's trying to convince some Christians to give some money to some other Christians that are poorer than them. And in the midst of that appeal, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I think that's a reference to the gospel. What does it mean? Why do you say that? What does it mean? Our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. Jesus was rich? What movies were they watching? He's always poor in all the Jesus films. What does that mean, though he was rich? I think it's talking about before he came here. Though he was rich, meaning before that first Christmas when he came as a baby, that he pre-existed him, you know, living like as a human here on this earth. He's God. Come here to save us. And so prior to living here, he was rich. He was in the heaven. He was in heaven, in the glory of heaven. And what did he own? Everything. That's rich. Very rich. Okay? He owned all of the things. Okay? He owned everything. And though he was rich. For your sake, he became poor. He came down and became one of us. What a condescension that is. Is that not crazy that he would come down in, from the glory of heaven and be one of us, a human being? And, and not just one of us. It seems to me that if he would have gone from the riches of heaven down into humanity and become one of us and become a rich one of us, that would have still been quite a drop. Like that would have been quite a condescension to go from the riches of heaven to just being a rich human and he didn't even do that. He became a poor one of us. He became poor by human standards, not even just by God's standards. And he lived a life of righteousness for us and then died on the cross, giving himself to us. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And when Jesus died on the cross, he gave for your salvation what? How much of himself did he give? All of himself. He didn't overgive, but he gave his whole self. I mean, just think about that. In order to save you and your eternal soul, Jesus did not make a donation. He didn't give 20%. He didn't give 5% to make sure you'd be okay. He gave his whole self to rescue me and you. And this, I think that's the gospel. That though he was rich, he became poor, he gave himself so that by his poverty, you, those of us who are poor, I think from, from God's perspective, we are poor both physically and spiritually. And that we might become rich, that we would be saved, that we would live with God forever in his riches. Live in the new heavens and new earth with the riches of God, which we don't deserve, but that's what we would get. That's the gospel. And the Apostle Paul gives us this gospel picture or this gospel presentation. And I want you to notice, when the Apostle Paul gives this, he, he doesn't make this gospel presentation to non-Christians. He, make, he, he, he gives this gospel picture to people who are already believers. And the context he does it in is to say to them, be generous like Jesus was generous. And that is also not a bad segue into celebrating the Lord's Supper. 
Because as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, specifically as we take the bread, you've got to remember what Jesus said about the bread. Do you remember? He said, this is my body that was given for you. He gave himself. We're, we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper, specifically remembering he gave himself for us. So Kenan's going to come up here and explain a little bit more about Lord's Supper, but in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, I thank you for this. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs. I thank you for the gospel. I pray that you would help us. I pray you'd help us to trust in you and not our wealth. Perhaps for some of us, that's going to require some changes in the bank account or the budget. For some of us, it might change some things about in our, our mind and the way we think about the future or the way we think about who we care about and what we do with our money and what we support. But I pray you'd help us to trust in you. It's tricky. It's hard. I pray you'd help us to not be judgmental of others, but I pray you'd help us to seek your will for our own lives. I pray you'd help us to honor you with our possessions and not think of them as ours and realize how not permanent they are, that you're loaning us this stuff for a, for a, a tiny little lifetime. I pray you'd help us to earn our things honestly, help us to not be a dishonest people. I pray you'd help us to plan ahead and to provide for our families and provide for our households. I pray you'd help us to give money away. I pray you'd guide us to know how much to spend, how much to save, how much to give. We ask for your guidance and that we would honor you. We love you and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you gave yourself to us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into our poverty. Thank you for saving us for your riches. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for everything. Pray you'd help us to properly respond to you. We love you and we're grateful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.